the mission is clear, but they don't necessarily go, here's the mission and here's exactly how we're going to do it. I've built the roadmap. I'm not going to relinquish any control. All these things have to be done. Those are the ones that aren't, you know, they're not usually as successful. You don't hear about them, really. Welcome to the Finterview. I'm here with Jazz Shah, fintech product consultant and person who has brought many amazing fintech products to the market over the years. Jazz, thank you very much for joining us on the Finterview. Awesome. Great to be here, Alistair. Thank you. Well, I'd like to start with a bit of background, if that's okay. So it would be great if you could kind of go through how you ended up here. What's your background and how did you get into fintech? Yeah, it should be. Um, it should be. A bit, I mean, it might be a bit of a long background, but I'll I'll start from the start. So I, I mean, I I did a computer science degree. I graduated in two thousand and eight. It was a I don't know tricky time, I guess, for people who have lived through that financial crisis. Graduated in two thousand eight. Was an engineer. Did about a year of literally writing code on a trading desk for traders and fund managers, and came to the realization that I wasn't that interested in spending the rest of my life writing code for people, to be honest. It was kind of challenging, but it wasn't as fulfilling as as some of my colleagues sat next to me. They they loved it way more than I did. So I jumped onto the Citibank grad scheme where I kind of veered more towards a center ground between business and technology. So I wasn't writing code every single day, but I was writing some now and then. But I was speaking to kind of end users, people on the credit trading desk and trying to understand problems. And I think the the product journey was kind of from there and the fintech journey was was essentially day one from my career. It was back in 2008 and I kind of was so interested in in how people were using technology in financial services. And I've kind of been in the industry ever since. From Citibank, I went to Schroders and did a very kind of similar product and analysis role. You know, moved up a little bit and then went to Fidelity and, and ran a team there and kind of managed a decision-making platform for their fixed income business, essentially look, looking at how fund managers manage funds and looking at some innovation. And then I left, I think it was 2019, 2018 maybe, to go to kind of go solo really and just to help some, help more financial services institutes out, some entrepreneurs and some very early stage founders and help them build products. And that's what I've been doing since then. The thing that we want to discuss today, which is kind of, I guess your speciality, and is maybe hidden slightly from people at the outset of trying to uh, create a fintech is, okay, we've got this fantastic idea. Let's get it to market as quickly as possible. Test it out. Then what? And I guess the formal way of describing that is the product development life cycle. So it'd be great if you could kind of give us your view on what that is and why it's important for people building fintechs? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess you you've kind of nailed a bit of the the start of it, the product development life cycle. People, the initial spark moment is like, oh, I've got an idea. That could be someone who's worked in an industry for thirty years. They've seen repeated problems again and again, and again. They just got to a point where they're like, look, no solution is coming out of it. Let's do something about it. Or it could be someone who just has a kind of flash in the pan idea, and they decide to do something about it. Or it's a you know the problem they faced once or twice and they decide, look, I had a discussion with a friend about it and me and a friend are going to do something about this problem that we face. So I guess traditionally the product development life cycle follows a very macro level, uh, five distinct, sorry, six distinct stages because I'm going sp- to split the last two and then I'll explain why at the end. Please do, yeah. Yeah, essentially it starts off with ideation discovery. I'll blend those two as one. So, you know, you have an idea and you, you might do some initial thinking about it and you might ask people questions like, oh, do you also face this problem? Like, how would you, or what tools do you use to solve this problem? What does a market look like? And then you probably do some in-depth discovery. So you'll actually do research with potential end customers, find out the specific problems, frame them in a way that makes sense and start to try and better understand the problems, the industry, the market, what currently exists, what doesn't exist, technology constraints and all of that kind of stuff. So that's, that's the discovery phase. Then you move on from discovery to design. You've got a hypothesis. You've done some discovery. You've maybe proven through evidence, through research, to, through qualitative and quantitative research that, yes, the problem exists. It's not just me. 
a range of other people face the problem. Here's how we're going to solve it. And then you start to design a solution to solve those problems. So that's, you know, looking at putting people into different customer personas, looking at uh, wireframes, looking at a user experience and building that out, doing designs, for example. And then you go from design to build, you know, use the design and discovery bit to kind of build a product. Part of design as well that maybe gets missed out is the design isn't just the the kind of the wireframes, not just the UX. It's it's usually the design of the roadmap. It's the design of how are we going to build it? What are we going to build? You know, what, what does an MVP look like? What does alpha look like? What does two years down the road look like? That's part of design. And it's it's not just a designer, you know, a UI, UX designer. It's a designer. It's an engineer. It's a product person. It's a strategist. It's someone who's got an economic, financial, like pricing background to build a roadmap and to build a framework to then go implement. So then build, build just implements that obviously you have things that happen during build that you maybe have to go back to design, revisit, and then go back to build. So it's, you know, it's not, it's not fixed stages, but at a macro level, I'll just describe it as those different stages. So you have discovery, then design, then build. Then obviously you have launch. I think launch maybe doesn't necessarily get the kind of attention that it deserves. Launching something is actually quite complicated. I think people maybe, yeah, they, they undervalue uh, the importance of getting comms right, building a whitelist, speaking to community, like the weeks and months approaching launch and not just a week before saying we're launching, keeping engagement going. That's part of launch. It's not just we hit a button, it's live on the app store or we send a comms out, it's live. It's keeping the engagement going, understanding how to launch, like what the launch strategy is going to be. That's where marketing it's obviously product as well because pro, uh, the discovery work is foundational to what marketing and design uh, do, all the assets they create, the launch strategy they come up with. But there's a lot of importance on marketing um, and having good people create a really robust launch strategy that fits in with the community. So launch is its own, for me, it's its own phase. Then you have growth, obviously. You launch, you hopefully you know get product market fit in the weeks, months, sometimes years uh, post-launch and you start to kind of grow your customer base. Usually you, you grow from your core customer base outwards. So I see it as you launch and you launch with this like tiny little circle encompassing a set of customers and then slowly you just kind of build, like grow that circle out and you encompass more and more customers and you slowly grow grow your customer base. Usually you grow your grow your own business at the same same or similar rate, you know, you hire people to get features out. And then you have scale. For me, growth and scale are different. I think people say growth sometimes when they mean scale. Sometimes they say scale when they mean growth. And scale is sustainable growth, which isn't necessarily in line with costs. It's not a put more money in, get more customers and revenue out. It's a kind of not inverse, but it's not, it's not directly correlated to the revenue or funding you put in. It's growing without necessarily having to pump loads of funding rounds into it. Those are the six stages in, like, in kind of a very macro level, discovery, design, build, launch, grow, scale. And are they, you know, thou shalt not pass gates that you need to achieve before you move to the next stage, a la, I don't know, the big boss in a computer game or something like that? Or how does someone move through through it in uh, in the same sort of way? In, how do they move from one to six? Yeah, I think that's a great analogy because they're not like they're not like levels you go through and you don't get to an end boss and go, oh, I have to complete this. I've got to kill, you know, Dr. Robotnik before I get to the next level. Some people frame it like that. So there are different ways of implementing the product development life cycle. I think traditionally old school and we say product development life cycle it's very in sync with software development life cycle so sdlc and so so the terminology is lots of it is transferable and lots of it is used in the same way but traditional especially early stage of my career we did waterfall and waterfall is you go through one level you do a requirements phase it's like three weeks four weeks could be months you do the requirements phase and then you sign off requirements you maybe have a business requirements doc that gets signed off. Only when you've signed that off and everyone agrees, these are the requirements, here's the research, sign it off, then you go to design phase. 
same with design you have wireframes or you might have um uh like changes that need to be made in a risk model you'll design those and you'll kind of show those to a core group of people stakeholders then they'll sign it off then you'll go to build that follows uh, and it follows like going through levels in a game but there are other ways of doing it i think most people nowadays they it's very iterative so you'll do a bit of discovery you'll maybe prove some of the hypothesis or you'll have enough discovery to move on and like do some design but it's often like overlapping so you have discovery and then you have design start two weeks into discovery but discovery doesn't stop it carry on and then design will carry on and then build will start halfway through design and then you know you might launch with a core product but people are still designing parts of the product so it's it for me it usually depends on how big the organization is if they're an early stage startup they don't usually go we have to have all these requirements signed off they'll have a very fluid we'll do some discovery we'll prove three of these 10 things that we think once we've proven at least three of them we'll move to design we'll carry on doing discovery on the other seven but we'll move to design on these three and then the process will flow and it kind of it's kind of iterative agile some people call it i just you know call it what it is is it's like it's just development and it's ongoing evolutionary development and it was a good point i think you just raised just about kind of how this is done in different sizes of businesses as well so probably at the very early stage much more fluid but as you go as you as you add i think the kind of the the way you described it is almost like a reverse peeling of an onion right you're adding the the layers back on of the onion as you get bigger and add more people so it becomes more formal over time would that would that be a reasonable kind of description yeah i think that's reasonable i think there are a lot of other constraints that we can we can talk about like this you know people want to see more process you know as you grow as a business and as other stakeholders come in like you know you have vcs come in you might have um big funding rounds they want to see more structure they want to say like how are you going to guarantee that you're going to build this stuff in six, in 6 months and when you're very early stage you you can't necessarily guarantee those things you can't say we're definitely going to build all of this stuff in 6 months and it doesn't necessarily matter that much because you're kind of accountable to yourself to a degree but when you when you grow and you've got thousands of employees to think about you've got this big funding round that's come in you have to you have to have some structure in place to to make some assurances and make some guarantees um, so it, it's th- yeah it's different different ways and again that goes to the nth degree when you're you know a FTSE 100 listed company and you guarantee things that's on that's on a public statement that's out there that everyone can read that could potentially if you don't hit a deadline potentially affect a share price that structure is even more even more important which is why I don't get why people sometimes slate big banks they're like oh why can't you do this it's like there's loads of different constraints that people have i could go build something now that's that's similar to a product a bank has but i'm not working under the same constraints it's very different it would be good to kind of go through a couple of examples if you have any just in terms of where you've seen this been done really well and led to a successful outcome and maybe the inverse as well if that's something that you think well, that you can share just because kind of it hangs some some flesh on the bone so to speak of what is unless you're deep in the fintech kind of industry might be slightly abstract so if we can run through a couple of examples from yours so that would be superb Yeah, I mean I can give one example of one that I've seen from a distance that looks like it's gone through a very a very methodical but still kind of methodical but with some creative chaos in there, which is wise or transferwise as it used to be called back in 2011. So, the example of transferwise is you have two two people two I think they were consultants at the time, Christo and Tabit. They were consultants working at different firms. one i think was getting paid in gbp and one was getting paid in euros each needed the other person's currency to kind of pay for bills pay for rent and all that kind of stuff and they're regularly getting stung by fees they had a conversation in a i think they had a conversation in a, in a bar at a, at a party at a house party or something and they both realized oh we we both face the same problem we both know that nothing really exists out there that that is fair in terms of fees for us why don't we just you know you just you know well, I'll lend you money and you lend me money and it's a p2p lending process i think i think they kind of went through that process organic the product development life cycle organically so they did some discovery they kind of asked questions of each other but they also asked questions to different people who were facing very similar problems so different people who were maybe not 
not UK nationals or not or expats in, in other countries, facing the same problems, did some discovery, built and designed and then built an MVP and then did the launch. And But they went back. So I think they did, what they did was build an MVP, fully launch, and they kind of got, went back through that cycle. And the growth, the growth for them was going through those stages and then constantly improving the product over and over and over and over again. And they've grown to, I think the, the I think they've exceeded 10 billion in, in transfers on the on the platform. And now their target is a billion in fees saved. So I, I think the other reason that's a great great example of product development is they've had a clear mission which guides their product development at each of those phases. Discovery, design, build, launch, grow, scale. They've got that clear mission to go, look, we want to make you know, we want to abolish fees for people, we want to make transacting fair, and now their mission is, I think, borderless money or money without borders. When you have that clear mission, you know at each stage what you're trying to what you can prioritize, what you're trying to build, who you're trying to benefit, and what, what the main purpose of, of the organization is. And it really helps kind of direct everyone's attention attention in, into a specific mission. I think, at least from my perspective, what TransferWise did particularly well is launched with a relatively straightforward product, i.e. You know, cross-border payments. And if you look at what their offering is now, it's it's way more kind of complicated, kind of banking-like. But they went through a very specific journey, starting with quite a simplified product to get there, rather than trying to go out with an all-singing, all-dancing kind of initial product into the market. Yeah. I mean, I'm a wise user, I'm a wise customer on both the kind of retail side and the business side. I think maybe something that they may, they may face challenges with in the future is, you know, like you said, they went to market with a simple product. They're adding more strings to the bow. What happens when the bow gets, the number of strings becomes too too big? What do you do? Do you create a new, again, I'm not, I'm not a violinist. I don't know what analogy I'm going for here. But <laughs> Go with it. Commit to it. Yeah. <laughs> I guess it's like, how much wood do you need to create the world's biggest guitar? No, I, I guess the, the challenge that banks also have is the challenge that fintechs will have in the future, which is banks have this, talking in very broad terms, but loosely speaking, banks have a problem with customer experience. Not all of their journeys are digital still. It's very difficult to do this, you know, blanket, make everything digital within six years approach, which I think... And customer habits and consumer habits have moved faster than transformations have. So th- there's this frustration from customers like, oh, why isn't it digital? Why don't I have to, why can't I just click three times? But then on the inverse side, people are complaining that the branches are closing. So there's this weird thing that banks have that, that small fintechs don't have. And I think they will have it as they add more products to their stack, which is how do you have just a mobile app that has 30 different products in it, you know, that has mortgages, loans, current accounts, savings accounts, investments, investment accounts. What does that look like? And I think some, like Monzo have just done a homepage refresh. They've done a full rebrand. They've kind of shifted a lot of things around. And I think this is a step towards adding more products to their stack, but they will have to do a, at least a couple more if they want to head in the direction of mortgages, credit cards, and all that, all that kind of stuff. They have credit cards already, but... And to have that full banking suite in an app is tough. So it'll be interesting to see how they overcome that challenge. And if you're starting a fintech or you have an idea for a fintech, at what stage, you know, because you get caught up in all the excitement about, wow, I've got this great idea, I've raised some money, I've got a co-founder, a technical co-founder, we've started building. At what stage do you think people should start th- really thinking about this? Is it right at the start you know plan it is it post mvp how do you go about kind of walking through with your customers about the right way to to begin this this process yeah i mean i think day one personally i mean minus day one could be like as in you, you can do discover or you could collate discovery before you start building a product you could do it before you found a find a co-founder you could do it before you find an engineer to write the first line of code or create a development framework i think it starts day one because i think once you start going through the process of okay we're going to build this we're going to start building some stuff and then you decide later on oh let's do some discovery design let's go through this process it's a lot more difficult to implement process in brownfield projects 
than it is with a completely greenfield project. Like if you, if I drew plans for a house on a white piece of paper now, and I had some requirements and I, I drew them out, and then I gave them to you and I said, Alistair, okay, we also need a cinema room and we need an outhouse and we need this and we need that, but you have to use my plans. You're having to kind of right, how do we do this? Well, we still need to live in the house. You have to move things around while things are live. It's way more, it's way easier to just start from the start and go, we've got a blank piece of paper. Here's how we're gonna do it. We're gonna do some initial discovery with some customers. We're gonna implement, you know, monthly, a quantitative surveys. Once a week, we're gonna to chat to a, a potential customer. Part of that chat is also putting them on the wait list. Implementing those processes is a lot easier when you haven't already started building something. Because then it feels like you're attached, you start building something, it feels like you're attached to something. When someone says, mm, I don't know if that's, you know, I don't know if that's the right way of approaching it, or is that really solving the problem? Again, people say, oh, their startups are their babies. It is like, oh, you're insulting my baby. You know, what are you calling my baby ugly? Because you haven't, it's already developed to a certain stage where you feel insulted because you've already built something, you've already got some cost there. If you build it from day one, you can't, you know, you haven't built any. If you implement the process from day one, you haven't built anything yet. So there's nothing to really be that offended about. It's just an idea. You just, you want some proof and you want some process in there. I think day one, as close to day one as you can get. And do you think, when you're going back to it being done well, when you've seen it and with founders or with people doing doing brownfield projects in, in fintech, are they kind of staring, like having their vision into the future, kind of understanding what they're trying to build long-term and then working back to a more simple product and then starting with that, knowing that they're going to be adding things as they go forward? Or is it a bit more kind of inductive, i.e. there's there's no kind of long-term... Well, the, the, do you see what I'm trying to get at? Like when it's done well, do they kind of know what they're aiming at and working backwards or is it kind of going through it with your eyes wide open as a process? I think it's knowing what you're trying to solve, but not necessarily knowing exactly how you're going to solve the problem. That's where I think the vision is the right word. People say vision. Sometimes people say mission. Sometimes people say purpose. I think having an individual purpose, but having a, an organizational purpose or mission and having a vision statement, those are fundamental to the products that you see that are really successful because you're not trying to implement something that maybe not is not going to work. You're just heading towards a specific direction and you can meander a bit. Now, if you have a specific, right, like a journey roadmap, so we can talk about that maybe today, maybe another time. But I think if you have a specific, we're trying to get here and we have to do all of these different stops you kind of meander, but it's very fixed. You know exactly where you're going to go. You know exactly what direction you're heading in. You know you're going to go here. You know you're going to hit that. You know you're going to hit that. feels very fixed. Whereas if you know, look, we want to get there, we don't necessarily know exactly how we're going to get there, but that's where we want to head. And you can meander around. I think that you see the best products from those types of founders that have a mission. The mission is clear, but they don't necessarily go, here's the mission and here's exactly how we're going to do it. I've built the roadmap. I'm not going to relinquish any control. All these things have to be done. Those are the ones that aren't, you know, they're not usually as successful. You hear about them, really. Um, going back to TransferWise, I think that's a good example of what you just described in the sense that having as a mission or vision to save a billion of fees kind of constrains what you're trying to build, right? So you're not trying to add investment products, et cetera, et cetera, to your product too early. You're trying everything you can to save cross-border transaction fees or something like that. So do you think that's the case? Kind of constraining by mission actually helps you kind of steer the product because it's a, it's a big wide world. You can do really whatever you want in your fintech product. You could add what, seriously whatever you wanted and kind of constraining the, the problem space is a good idea. Yeah, constrain the product space, but don't restrict exactly how to solve the problem and let let other people tell you here are the problems we're facing, here are the problems we're facing, here's what we use, here's what works, here's what doesn't work, and use that to inform how to solve the problem. I guess the other thing I was thinking about when you said, yeah, their mission is really clear, but I'd say that it doesn't necessarily restrict them from adding investment products because, again, the mission is saving fees. It could be saving cross-border investing fees. So if you're a, you know, if you're a Euro, uh, European working in 
because we're not Europeans anymore. If you're a European working in the UK and you're trying to invest, you might, you know, different tax rules, you might get stung by a different set of fees. So it could still fit into that bucket of saving fees for individuals, but cross-border. Or it could just be bringing more clarity to tax rules for people in the US trying to invest in the UK. So I, th- I think you're right. I think that you need the vision, you need the, the kind of the mission of the organization. Whether that's in a, a nice catchy statement with a, you know, with a cool slogan, or whether that's just clear within the organization. And then you can let other people tell you or let other people inform exactly how you get there. I think one of the things about financial services is, especially in, I guess, in fintech over the last couple of years, there's a lot of fintechs been created doing similar-ish sorts of things. How do you think you need to go about standing out as a fintech in the current market? Yeah, I mean, I'm going to sound like a robot because I'm saying the same thing, but I'd say speak to your customers to really understand how to stand out because what you'll find is that not every group of people want exactly the same thing. And the ex- like the example I use is not everyone supports the same football team. Not everyone drives exactly the same brand of car. Not everyone even has, despite Apple's amazing growth, not everyone has the same brand or model of phone or laptop, wears the same clothes, hangs out in the same places, looks the same, wears the same product in their hair, styles their beard the same way. Every single person is is different. You can group people into, you you can put rings around people and group people into different habits, different lifestyles, different cultures. And what you find is to differentiate, you should probably speak to different groups of people and understand, do people solve problems in the same way? Usually they don't. People from different cultures will want different things. So I, I think the best way to differentiate is really understand really understand what the mission is, what, what the problem you're trying to solve is, and then figure out what your point of differentiation is. Is it, we're going to solve the problem in a very similar way, but for a different group of people? Or we're going to solve the problem in a completely different way for the same group of people. And and different different fintechs attack it differently. Again, what you'll see is loads of lots of neo banks that have different branding. And it's very clear they're they're kind of targeting a different set of people. Like they're niching on the customer segment rather than the, the feature set. The feature set is very similar. They have account management, they have a transaction feed, they have card controls. They have simplified payments. You can do payments via payment links. And there are loads popping up all around Europe, all around the world. Very similar, but they they attack it in terms of a different customer segment. But the feature set is the same. Then you have some of that, like Revolut, for example, is, is stepping into that super app domain. And you can tell their, their, their feature set is very different. They're looking to, to be a super app. And they're being more generic. You can see it from their branding. It's not like Klarna, bright, bright pink, or it's not like um, other fintechs and brands that, that are kind of differentiating a lot. They're trying to become more, I don't want to say monotone, but they're trying to have a broader appeal, but have a more specific feature set. So I think it's you can attack it in different ways, I think. The best way to do it is, again, understand what your problem mission is and is the best way to solve this problem on a wide, wide scale to segment by um, customer group, or is it to really differentiate the feature set and that feature set should attract a broader group of people because they'll see it as a different, unique proposition. So it's, there's a, those are just two ways. There are, there are other ways of differentiating. Again, you can differentiate by just creating a completely different, like smashing the, the business model, smashing the business model, creating a completely new thing that does something completely different to what you've seen before. And we might see some of those in the next few years. It's the inverse of what you're describing um also why you said banks have a have trouble with customer experience because they have five six seven million customers on their let's say their retail banking platforms and actually they can't differentiate between those customers in any meaningful way the short answer is yes i would challenge anyone to look at i think is it lloyd's have 30 i think they have 30, 30 million customers I would challenge anyone to create a product that serves 30 million customers, but through one platform, one website, one landing page. It's very difficult. Then if you go the other way and you really 
you know, let's say you create a dynamic. I think maybe this is the way it will go at some point. You create a dynamic, a configurable web page that when you log in, it's completely different for every every single customer. The problem with that is, well, how do you track, you know, what consumers are doing, how customers interact with the product, because the product is different for every single customer. You can't then, lots of organizations, banks and fintechs included, do is they, they'll have metrics frameworks set up in the background to really understand why is this customer doing this? Why are they clicking that? Why are they not clicking this? Is this product we've pushed to them relevant, yes or no? It's really difficult to do that if you if you have distinct pages. So the challenge is it's difficult to create a lovable product where you're serving 30 million customers and you've got one web page or one landing page and one version of the product. It's also very difficult to manage 30 million different versions of effectively the same product. 30 million different user experiences distinct to every single customer. So there is the balancing point. I think the other challenge that that banks have had is, again, we've gone through these technological ages and they've gone through three, maybe, three different technological uh, disruptive ages. Most fintechs haven't even gone through one. Like, I think I think they're hitting them now, like the age of AI, let's say. But most fintechs start even, you know, starting in 2010, haven't even been through one and banks have had to go through three with that mass of customers and they've still managed to serve them, maybe not as well as other other products have, but they've still managed to get, I don't want to say get the job done, but they've still managed to, to create valuable service and valuable product. Um, but yeah, you're right. The inverse is true. It's just, it's really difficult to serve a wide spectrum of customers and keep and keep everyone happy. And um, so I think what we're describing is for um, people building financial services in right now to serve and understand kind of a niche group of customers and understand what they need and how to how to get services across to them. But that kind of raises another question, which is, okay, well, if I'm not going to be serving 30 million customers, how do I make sure that my business is sustainable going forward when the maximum number of customers that I can serve, let's say in UK and Europe, in my little niche is 1 million? for example. So how do you think people should kind of think about that problem over time? Because obviously, as you scale, you can add new features, but it'd be really interesting to kind of understand how you think about stacking new features or laddering them as, as a customer goes forward. Yeah. Again, I, th- I think it goes back to discovery. And, you know, I've said it before. I think you've said it as well. Discovery is, a fa- is one of these foundational blocks. Usually you could go back to some early stage discovery and figure out like you know we went back to and we said the, the normal approach is to do th- maybe look at three key problems and then iterate go to design iterate go to build launch and then at the point where you've launched and you're starting to grow your customer base you obviously you go back to discovery it's about looking at discovery and figuring out look we've solved these three problems in in this way are there other problems there that could be solved do we focus on these three key problems and literally go through the cycle again of design, build, and launch, but sticking with the three key problems, or do we expand the problem set out, or do, yeah, or do we build more features and stack things on the roadmap that make more sense for the customer? I think the, the key thing is that usually the discovery is a foundational foundational step, but also once you've launched, people have the pro- the product in in their hands, so it's the best time to go ask them. You don't have to be brazen about it. You don't have to keep popping up. Do the survey. Do the survey. Do the survey. It's oftentimes it can be more conversational. It's also very different B2B versus B2C or B2B2B versus B2C. If, you know, if you're an infrastructure product, it's very different to um, a neobank, for example, because your customers are, might be other banks, they might be fintechs, they might be founders. But once your product is out there in the market, it's a matter of keeping in touch with how they're using the product. This is where analytics comes into play, but also doing that qualitative research that ongoing customer feedback, creating customer feedback loops and making sure that they are, you're checking with customers on a regular basis because you have to stay on the pulse of what's going on. You can't just launch a product and go, product is launched, done, we don't need to, you know, we don't need to iterate anymore. We'll just carry on building things on the roadmap. Like you might launch a product and customers might use it in a very different way. They might still see value in it, but they might be using it in a different way to what you originally thought. So you have to keep going back asking them, okay, why are you using this this way? Do you think it would be valuable to change these things? What areas would you like us to focus on next? 
again, it's not dictatorial. You don't just do what your customers say. You have to. That's why you have experienced people on the team. You take some customers, some customers' feedback with with different degrees of potency. So you, you might go, oh, this person knows exactly what they're talking about. This is how they use a product. And you might use some customers' feedback as just, oh, we're not sure if that's relevant to what we're trying to build. Um, but it, it's about having the voice in the background all the time. It's not about having the voice and necessarily informing exactly how the roadmap moves, but it's about having the voice in the room. Often that usually manifests itself as like a customer success person on the team. That's where I've seen it work really well. Like, because product is great. Product is great as a, as a function, but often it can be quite a, an all-encompassing task to do roadmap, strategy, vision, customer discovery, speak to 10, 20, 30 customers a week, get the feedback, collate it, review it, build it into the roadmap. So that's where customer success team, you could build that into their just day-to-day customer success or support team. Whenever they get a customer interaction, you always ask them, oh, how are you using the product? What value are you seeing from it? And not just when there are problems. I think there's that. You have to filter out asking customers questions when they're really annoyed versus asking customers questions when they're happy. That's that's the other balance you have to strike. Like when you're doing research, you can't just do research at, at point of annoyance. You have to do it at different stages and then gather the feedback and kind of weight it accordingly. So yeah, I think it's a matter of, again, stacking, stacking features, stacking a roadmap is a matter of understanding the mission but also taking in that customer voice as it's using the product and then using it to kind of meander through towards that towards that specific mission. One of the things that I find very interesting is that going back to what you've just said, kind of there's a balance to be had, at least in my mind, about kind of listening to listening to customers to a degree. And I was going to ask you about some common mistakes, but I, I guess you're going to say, well, it, like not listening to your customers would be a very common mistake and building stuff that they don't really want. But within financial services, I can see kind of some things that customers might ask for early on in a journey that would be a mistake to actually listen to them. For example, because nine out of 10 customers says, wouldn't it be great if you'd lend me money? And before you're able to have the, let's say the the infrastructure, the resources and all the sort of infrastructure to be able to do that successfully to a wide like client base. Do you think that's the case or am I coming at it from a slightly strange perspective? No, I think, I think you're right. But yeah, again, customers ask, I think I have heard that before, not, not, not that specific point that you've raised. Can you lend me money? But I have heard, oh, wouldn't it be great if the thing did this? Wouldn't it be great if we could do that? Oh, it'd be cool if we had different colors or it'd be cool if, you know, that was over there. And you're like, yeah, that's fine. That's your specific opinion. We'll take that, but we'll also put that with the thousands of other comments we've received that aren't saying that. You're the only one out of, you know, a thousand people. We've that's, what, that's why listening to enough voices is also key. You can't just listen to five or 10 or 20. I, and I think maybe that's why, you know, you see some of the, some podcasts with with founders and they say you should be speaking to your customers every single day. I think the the intent behind that statement, although sometimes it can be ridiculous, if you're a founder, you 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 know, I've worked with loads of founders before. I don't see how they can find the time to speak to customers every single day, to be honest. I understand the the meaning behind it. The meaning is you need to speak to customers, you need to stay on the pulse of what they're thinking, but you also need to speak to enough people. If you speak to one person a week for a year, you maximum speak to 52 people out of how many thousands using your product. So I think that that's where the um, phrase flowing around comes from or the, like the, the che- founder checkbox thing comes from. Um, but I think, yeah, listening to enough diverse voices kind of gets rid of that. Like when people ask for loan products, I guess the other thing is feeding back to customers. So for example, if you're a customer and you go, oh, you know, I think it'd be great to have, have loan products. It's, it's good to ensure that, yeah, you you know you take the feedback on board, but you don't necessarily go implement it. And then you maybe let them know, this is why we're not doing loan products. This is our mission. And again, this is where mission is, is really clear. It's our mission is this. If we find a way of making loan products part of that, the journey towards that mission, then it works for us and it works for you. But right now, this is our mission. Sometimes that's also where public roadmaps can help like creating a roadmap, publicizing it and going, yep, we've logged it, it's on our roadmap. Or even just 
even just having a way for customers to, to submit ideas and see their ideas somewhere. Because a customer might have an idea and they might say, oh, wouldn't it be good to have this loan product? And they just want to see it like somewhere so that someone know, they know someone's thinking about it or it's a possibility down the line. And again, I think customer intent is usually it's great around that side of things. And it's usually around, I want to see evolution. I think the product is great. I want to see more. I want to see the product move. And usually when you show progress to customers, they don't go, yeah, but where's my loan product? They go, oh, actually, that's really great. Like, I can see progress. That's why I'm going to stay on the platform. But most of the platforms I've switched off of are things that you can't see progress, you can't see change, and you can't see positive change, like ongoing positive change. And then you think, well, I'm, I feel like I'm being left behind here. Like, I've, I've committed to this product. I've committed to using this product, and it's not going to move as fast as the other ones. Why should I stay here? Like, what, what's keeping me on this platform versus the other one? Would you say that's the same for B2C as to B2B as well? The way you were describing, would it be across both types of platform or were you specifically kind of talking about B2C kind of products? I think, I'm, I mean, I'm specifically talking about B2C products because I think B2B product, it's it's a bit, of, for me, it's a bit of a different beast. I think, you, you know, you're, again, customer feedback is very different. Customer feedback isn't necessarily, isn't necessarily a customer success team. It might be a partnerships team or it might be a sales team. It might be a business development person. Like that stuff's very different. And I think the skew usually is, and we, we can get into the minutiae of different politics, but if you're an early stage B2B company, you know, it's a lot harder to get your first customer than if you're a B2C company. Because there are a lot, firstly, there's just a lot less, there are a lot less customers out there. There's 8 billion potential, let's say, you know, broadly speaking, or 4 billion potential B2C customers, but there aren't 4 billion B2B customers. So you're all automatically you're looking at a smaller pot. Often B2B, if we're talking about larger B2B organizations, you you rely on a single big client to kind of help you evolve the product and maybe also help you with the runway, especially if it's if it's your first big client and they're you know they're going to be a revenue revenue generate client. You end up this is something I've said before. It's like when a client says something, you just build it. Because you're like, well, we don't want to lose the client and we don't know if we're going to get another client like this. And if we don't get another client, it's a choice now between building this thing that they've asked for or not existing in six months. So with B2B, I think the challenges are very, very different. So when I was talking about getting regular customer feedback, it's more on the B2C side. But I still think you have to listen to your B, you know, obviously if it's one client, even if it's 10, 10 big clients, you have to have roundtables, you have to have discussions, you have to take all their feedback on board, stack it up in order. The prioritization of B2B customer feedback is different because you might weight things on revenue. You might go, JP Morgan's our biggest client. We can't prioritize community bank XYZ over what JP Morgan are asking for, even though community bank AYZ, is, uh, their request is actually fits in with our roadmap. Let's just build what, what these guys say because... Sometimes it's about relationship building. Sometimes it's about revenue and you have to factor all of those things into, into feedback. So I think B2B versus B2C, the challenges are very different, especially when, when you come to customer feedback. I'm going to ask you a bit of a stinking question now, but just in terms of, you know, I hear you from the B2B side of things and this question is related to that. So is there, if taken to the extreme, yes, we'll build it for specific customers. You can kind of get dragged into... Uh, away from being kind of a product company into a services consultancy sort of way of doing things. There's a balancing act, right, um, to be played there if you want to scale the business. So just any thoughts on kind of where you've seen that done well or any tips for anyone who's kind of struggling with those sorts of things at the moment? Because it, it can be challenging to say no to businesses or to customers in a B2B scenario, as you describe. Yeah, I mean, uh, I guess com- like companies like Marketer and, and Thread have done pretty well as you know because the you know there the, are payment issuer issuer processes that are essentially serving lots of the fintech community and you have loads of people ask them different things can you do this can you do this can you do that so i think they've they've done it well it's on pushback i think it's a matter of also communicating back to whoever's asked the request because th- there's a weird there's often a weird I, i'm talking from like a fintech to bank point of view for example so if you're a fintech and you're servicing a bank there's a weird relationship where 
the bank wants to use the fintech for the fintech's understanding, expertise, and tech, but then the bank will ask for things that it thinks it knows it wants. It wants for a specific reason, and then sometimes the fintech won't push back, and sometimes it's like a little like it's a little dance. Sometimes the bank will, uh, or the bigger organisation, the bigger client will ask for things, and they actually want a bit of pushback. They're asking for things, but they want to. They either want you to tell them why that's not a good idea or they want a reasonable explanation as to why it's not going to be done now. They don't necessarily want you to go, yeah, we're going to do it. Some do. There's some things that, you know, there's some things that people will ask for and you can tell, right, they want this because this is the problem that they have to solve. It's mandated from top down and they either get us to build it or they have to go acquire another company or they have to spend a year building it themselves. So in those situations, you can like dance around it and go, oh, okay, we'll do it, but dot, 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 dot put some caveats in place. But sometimes they're asking for things that, that they, and they expect pushback. And then when you don't give them pushback, they'll just ask for more things. That, I think that, that's just the kind of relationship that, that often plays out. It's pretty natural, I think. As a smaller organization where the power dynamic is a bit different, often they do want that like pushback and they want your expertise as to why, why you're pushing back. They want a clear explanation. And usually when you give it to them, they're like, that's fair. Yeah, we understand it's not going to be done for six months. Or we're not going to understand it's not going to be done this year. And we get your reasons why. Again, it's sometimes they'll ask for things that they definitely want it. It's about understanding, okay, some of the politics about the request, like, you know, what the background is behind it. Is it on their internal roadmap? Does it put goodwill in your bank? Like, not just revenue. Does it put goodwill in the bank? Because that, that can offer... You know, obviously you can't you can't pay salaries with goodwill, but you can extend relationships and service agreements on goodwill. So it's it's about picking features on picking features on understanding requests, but also pushing back. And I think this is especially early stage, it's really difficult to push back because it feels like you're saying no to someone who is gonna pay you and is gonna like is gonna allow your business to run for longer. So it feels weird, but sometimes saying no is the best way of extending the relationship. Do you see a as clear a link? We talked about TransferWise and their kind of mission and how it that clear, simple mission kind of guide um, allowed them to guide what they were building within specific kind of criteria and product space. Do you see the same kind of tight link for, let's say, a marketer to kind of guide guide the same sorts of decisions um, in the same way? By that I mean, if a customer asks for something. And they say, oh, it is actually tied into a, the kind of the mission here. We should do this. It's a clear yes, rather than a pushback to the customer. Do you, do you see that in the same way? Or is it kind of less correlated in your view? I think it's it's a bit more difficult to, to map it out because, again, the, they are more uh, a fintech enabler. So it's more like they're helping fintechs and other financial services institutes thrive. So it's difficult to see what, what, what the mission. I think the mission is is more to basically build as many as many fintech organizations as possible or help to build. And so you can see it from some of their, and again, I'm a little bit biased because I've worked with them a bit before, but you can see it from some of the content they put out. They're not just trying to, here's some APIs, here's some enablement. We've got some connections with some, some schemes. Come look at it and then figure out if it's right for you. They're also trying to educate people. They're trying to educate innovators help them understand what the ecosystem looks like, who the big players are, again, like integrated finance, for example. Connect all the, all the people up, give them enough knowledge to make informed decisions, and then if that happens to be Marketo as a partner, as a payment processing partner, or as a card issuing uh, partner, then great. But I think they just want to, as well as enabling fintechs to build, they also want to upskill and educate the whole ecosystem. Again, caveat, little star, I've worked with them before, so it's, I'm a little bit biased because I've been on <laughs> I've been on some of their webinars where I've literally talked about fintech education. But I know firsthand that, that that that's part of what they're trying to do is to is to upskill, is to be the rising tide to raise all all ships. I think the same the same does go for Thread, you know, and and a few of the other players in in the ecosystem. They're trying to educate and upskill as well as support technologically and and be that glue between. Schemes, core banking platforms, consultants like myself, AML, KYC, KYB providers, all of that kind of stuff. So 
I think there's no, I can't remember the tagline. Maybe that's just I have more of affinity with Wise's tagline because it's just kind of like bright green. But I think their mission is is very much like help people to build, but also upskill everyone at the same time. Final question. We've talked about product development lifecycle. We've talked about how that feeds into a potential roadmap. How does having those two things kind of allow you or how does it interact with overall company strategy, do you think? And how have you seen it done well? How I've seen it done well is kind of company strategy and product, especially when you're talking about a product-led organization. If you're a company where a product is just part of what you're offering, it's a bit different. But usually where I've seen it done well in product-focused organizations is where company strategy and product strategy are very tightly aligned. Again, Wise's example, it doesn't seem like there is any delineation between product strategy and the company's mission and the company strategy. They're one and the same. It's like make money borderless. That's the overall vision statement. Obviously, it trickles down in different ways. For example, like it'll trickle, to, it'll trickle down into marketing in a very different way than it trickles down into the different product streams, like across business accounts, FX, accounts, account management, support. But I think where it's been done well is is there is there's not like huge delineation between the two because if you get delineation between the two you're starting to like you're almost pitting people against each other in terms of what what their focus is. Oh, my focus is to do like to create a lending product. Well, no, my focus is to reduce FXPs. That's it. If you've got two different missions in the organisation, it splits a bit. You start to get a bit of loggerheads and people aren't on the same page. So it's kind of guardrails, would you say? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's essentially for me. That's what, but that's what that like that single, clear, vision, mission, purpose is. It's does it fit in with the vision? No, it doesn't. Okay, why doesn't it? Is there a, like sometimes there's a fundamental reason why it doesn't fit in with the mission, and it's still valuable to do. But those are more exceptions. Those are more like okay, explain yourself why why are we doing this if it doesn't fit in with the mission. Whereas if you do, if you, everything you do in the mission that's across different teams, I think people people would tend to move in the same direction then instead of pulling away. That's where I've seen it done well. Again, why is this an example? All of the good fintechs you know and hear about, you can go on their site and you don't you don't have to necessarily see the tagline of borderless money, for example, at Wise, or if you go on Mondo's site or you go on Starling's site, you go on Revolut's site. It's clear you go on their site, you know what they're about. They make it clear throughout, and I think those are the companies that, that do product and and company strategy really well again clear mission but clear in terms of like it doesn't necessarily need to be spelled out to you it's clear from going on their site looking through their product right here's what they're trying to do like you can look up if you go scroll down to Revolut's website you can see they're not just accounts I think they do say outright because see from their product stack accounts their lifestyle products cross border money all of that like they're trying to be that your western super app essentially Needs a Western Supermare. Western Super Western. <laughs> and on that note, on Western Supermare, I think we'll we'll leave it there. Thank you so much, Jazz. Thanks, Alter. Appreciate it. Speak to you soon. Cheers. Cheers. Thank you.